We'll hear argument next to number 92-1500, uh, Paul Kaspari versus Christopher Boland. Mr. Young, is that you pronounce it Young rather than Young? Young, here. Young, Mr. Young. Yes, Mr. Chief. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. The case before this court involves whether the double jeopardy principles of Bullington should be extended to non-capital sentencing proceedings. Whether doing so would be Teague barred, and indeed, whether Bullington should be overturned. The purpose of sentencing is to assure that the punishment fits the offender and not merely the offense. Defendant's status and not his conduct is the linchpin of sentencing. The rehabilitation of a defendant is a factor that the sentencer should consider, consider because sentencing focuses on the proper punishment, the double jeopardy clause has never prevented a sentencer from imposing a higher sentence upon resentencing. In fact, in United States versus DeFrancisco, this court stated that the task is to determine whether the criminal sentence once pronounced is to be accorded constitutional finality and conclusiveness similar to that which attaches to a jury's verdict of acquittal. This court stated, we conclude that neither the history of sentencing practices nor the pertinent rulings of the court, not even consideration of double jeopardy policy, supports an equation. The procedures required for sentencing a defendant as a persistent offender in Missouri include pleading the prior convictions in the indictment or information, introduction of evidence of the defendant's prior convictions at a hearing conducted outside the presence of the jury and prior to submitting the case to the jury, and a finding by the judge that the defendant is a persistent offender. The statute allows for the use of pre-sentence investigation reports and commitments as proof of a prior conviction. Case law in Missouri has established that introducing certified copies of prior convictions and commitment reports is prima facie proof that the defendant is a person named in the, in the prior convictions for the purpose of the habitual offender statute. Once the prima facie proof is made, the burden shifts to the defendant to disprove the prior convictions. If the defendant fails to rebut the prima facie proof, the trial court may rely on that prior, those prior convictions for invoking the habitual offender statute. Mr. Young, what the consequences of habitual offender in Missouri, do I understand right that the only consequence is that the judge, that the, the jury will no longer recommend the sentence, but that the range would be identical? 
In this case, Your Honor, it would be, but if it, in, not in all cases. In, if an individual was uh, convicted of a Class B felony, the range of punishment then would enhance as an habitual offender to a Class A felony. In this, in this case, the only difference was that the, the jury would not have an opportunity to set the ceiling. That's correct, Your Honor. That's correct, Your Honor. Also, it would affect his, his eligibility for parole under the uh, Missouri statutes. Uh, as a persistent offender, there are consequences of when you would be eligible for a parole consideration also. But it's not like the usual add-on enhancement of a sentence. Missouri, is, is this scheme unusual? That is, that habitual offender status doesn't mean you get an increase, you go in go up to a higher range. It's the same range. In this case, Your Honor, that is correct. It is not in a mandatory such as a mandatory life imprisonment if you're an habitual offender. It would just, since he was already a Class A felony, and one of the sentences within the Class A felony is life imprisonment, it was still within that range. That's correct, Your Honor. Do you know if this, this scheme is unusual or the other states that have it too where the range is the same? I... Uh, my uh, investigation of that, Your Honor, is basic found that uh, states are split on that issue. Some states have that an habitual offender is subject to a mandatory life imprisonment. Certain states, such as Illinois, have where they are is, a, is within a range of punishment that is imposed by the judge, an enhanced range of punishment. Mr. Young, if, if you claim that applying uh, Bullington in this case would be wrong, it seems to me, a fortiori, you, you must claim that applying Bullington in this case would be new. That's, that's correct, Your Honor. And so why isn't all of this Teague barred? That's, your, that's correct, Your Honor. We have raised that this issue is Teague barred. The court below found that it was not Teague barred because they said you could stretch Bullington into the application of non, uh, uh, non-capital sentencing proceedings. And our position is that stretching Bullington alone would be Teague barred because it is not dictated by past precedents of this case, this court. So is your view that our, that our choice is essentially between two things? Either we hold it Teague-Bard or we overrule Bullington, but there's no way to say uh, that, that this, uh, to rule on the merits of this question if we incline toward your view? I think, Your Honor, the court could state that uh, double jeopardy doesn't apply to non-capital sentencing proceedings in and of itself and not have to reach whether uh, it is a new rule. If this court were to apply that that uh, Bullington doesn't apply to non-capital sentencing proceedings, we wouldn't have the issue of whether it's Teague barred. If, it's, if this court were to interpret that dub, uh, Bullington does apply to non-capital sentencing proceedings, then we would argue that it is Teague barred because it would be an application of a new rule on a collateral appeal. And- Back, are you saying that we would get to the T question only if we are inclined to rule against you? I, I believe so, Your Honor, even though I had, there are cases that say Teague is a threshold issue. So it, it seems like it could be in some certain situations, some uh, cases have said that Teague is a threshold issue, uh, saying that we have to look Teague for... Teague said that, didn't it? I, I believe you're, you're in Saffelberg versus Parks, I believe, also stated that also, Your Honor. I mean, that Teague it was, itself, they didn't reach the merits. That's it? correct, Your Honor. That's... Uh, uh, so it would be, we, I would concede that if you determine that uh, this, it could be Teague barred and not rule on the merits. That's correct, Your Honor. And it would be new, the distinction would be made because of the uh, heightened degree or the, the, uh, the more expansive degree of discretion that is involved in the sentencing proceeding here is distinct from the degree of discretion uh, in, the, in the Bullington situation. That's correct, Your Honor. 
I think that uh, this court has always recognized that in non-capital sentencing proceedings that there is a more greater emphasis uh, to allow the jury to make that finding in, within the broader range of punishment, and they have a more uh, expanded range of punishment which they can impose, unlike situations where it's either life or death in capital situations, Your Honor. Also under the Missouri statute, Your Honors, the trial court may take judicial notice of testimony uh, regarding the defendant's habitual offenses. So needless to say that in Missouri, the court could just not have to have a prior offender hearing separate and distinct. He could recognize the testimony at trial and hold in and of itself based on that testimony that the defendant is an habitual offender. The fact that the pre-sentence investigation and commitment reports can be admitted into evidence, along with the fact that a certified copy of the judgment sentence establishes a prima facie evidence of prior conviction, demonstrates that the habitual offender statute is a ministerial act. Because Missouri's habitual offender statute is a ministerial act, the double jeopardy clause does not apply. Well, it might not be a ministerial act if the defendant wanted to challenge some prior conviction on the ground that he had not been afforded counsel or something like that. That's correct. Uh, if the defendant were to challenge it, this burden would shift back to the defendant to prove that it was uncounseled. Uh, he could not challenge the, the conviction in and of itself, but he could challenge a constitutionality such as it was an uncounseled guilty plea. Is there any indication why the first time around there's nothing in the record to show the prior conviction? No, Your Honor. Uh, there is nothing in the record. Uh, the only thing that is in the record, Your Honor, is that the trial, the prosecutor on the morning of trial at a uh, pretrial conference uh, stated that he was willing to proceed. He had the prior convictions and was ready, well, ready to proceed and demonstrate the prior offender uh, statute. But why it never occurred, we don't know, Your Honor. One of the purposes of double jeopardy is to prevent a de defendant from being retried and convicted, although innocent. However, the possibility of innocence of a sentence cannot occur because a sentence, second sentencing decision is as correct as a first jury sentencing decision. Even if the trial court determines that the prosecutor failed to meet the statutory obligation for establishing defendant to be an habitual offender, the prosecutor failure is not an applied acquittal of the prior convictions. Nothing would prohibit the use of those prior convictions in a subsequent proceeding. Prior to Bullington, the protections afforded by the Double Jeopardy Clause had never been extended to sentencing. And since Bullington, this Court has never extended the Double Jeopardy Clause to non-capital sentencing proceedings. In declining to extend the Double Jeopardy Clause to non-capital sentencing proceedings, this Court noted that the non-capital sentencing proceedings allowed for a broader range of punishment rather than the life and death limitation imposed by a jury in capital sentencing proceedings. Now, what case was that, Mr. Young? That was in United States versus uh, DeFrancisco. The court noted that the uh, broader range of punishment, Your Honor, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, was that the uh, ju judge had to impose once he made the finding that the defendant was a dangerous special offender in that, in that case. But that was, that was decided before Bullington, wasn't it? That's correct, Mr. Chief Justice. So you really can't say that that, that case decided that Bullington didn't extend to non-capital cases if it came before Bullington? 
That's correct, Mr. Chief Justice. I think that uh, Lockhart versus Nelson, this court uh, specifically stated that the issue was not before it at that time and stated that the court, because all the parties assumed that it did apply, but they didn't address that issue and specifically left it open. Uh, in extending the double jeopardy clause to capital sentencing proceedings, this court determined that capital sentencing proceedings are unique because they so resemble a trial. The so-called uniqueness found by this court in Bowington, including opening statements, testimony, introduction of evidence, jury instructions, final arguments, and jury deliberations. These facts, coupled with the prosecutor's requirement to prove certain statutorily defined facts beyond a reasonable doubt, and the jury's limitation of imposing either life or death, led this court to believe that double jeopardy clause applied to capital sentencing proceedings. Unlike capital sentencing proceedings, Non-capital sentencing proceedings do not require the same do not require the same unique characteristics. Although a separate proceeding is required to establish whether a defendant is an habitual offender under Missouri statutes, this proceeding is conducted before a judge and not a jury, and is conducted prior to the jury's determination of guilt or innocence. The purpose of the hearing is to determine if the judge or jury will determine the defendant's sentence. There are no opening statements, closing arguments nor is there any instructions or jury deliberation. The only common characteristics between capital sentencing proceedings and non- Just to be sure I understand your position, supposing all those things were true, supposing you decided in Missouri to have the the multiple offender statute, I forget the name, apply uh, only after a jury found all the facts that the judge now finds, prior convictions and say it, would it make any difference to you? (laughs) I don't think so, Your Honor. I think if you looked at the Bullington decision, there were three basic uh, factors that uh, led this court to that decision, and one was a tri- only one of them was a trial-like proceeding. The second one was the proof beyond the reasonable doubt, and the third one was the choice between life and death. And what is the standard of proof in, in, in this proceeding before us today? Beyond a reasonable doubt, Your Honor. So that does it. And then what's the third? The limited choice between life and death. Do you think that's different from a limited choice? Say that, say the uh, multiple offender had to have a mandatory sentence longer. It's to say it was a little more severe than it is here. Would that be a distinguishing feature then? I think that could be considered, Your Honor, if you looked at it and you said all three factors, then you could yeah. probably say it looked more like Bullington. However, I, I think that in this situation, Your Honor, it does not look like Bullington because we don't have the, the such as in the Texas habitual offender statute, which requires a mandatory life imprisonment if the finding of the habitual offender statute. Is, is the main point that this the, the, here the judge does the sentencing and, and in, in Bullington it was a jury? I, I, case law, Your Honor, I believe states that there is no distinction between judge sentencing and jury sentencing, so that wouldn't be that relevant whether the judge or jury did the sentencing. As soon as you, as soon as you acknowledge that, then the absence of instructions to the jury, of course, is just because it's a judge, not a jury. That's correct, Your Honor, but there is no, the, the issue is basically whether this is a trial-like setting. Is right. this an adversarial proceeding? And we, we argue that it's not an adversarial. Even though this requires proof beyond a reasonable doubt, it's not a trial-like setting. That's correct, Your Honor. I think that is just not that factor in and of itself makes it a trial-like setting. Mr. Chief Justice, I'd like to save the rest of my time for rebuttal. Uh, very well. Mr. Kelly, we'll hear from you. Then we'll hear from you next, Mr. Sindel. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. I want to make two points this morning. Uh, The first is that the Court's decision in Bullington v. Missouri is distinguishable from this case and does not control the outcome here. 
And the second point is that the court ought not to extend Boynton to cover this case. On the first point, we submit that the persistent offender determination in Missouri is quite unlike the trial-like process that was at issue in Boynton. In the penalty phase of a capital case like Boynton, the procedure is very much trial-like. The court relied on that factor heavily in Boynton, and in this case, and in persistent offender determinations generally, those features are not fully present. In a capital case like Boynton, because it was like a trial with a verdict, quote, on the question of life or death, the court thought and was willing to treat the outcome of that proceeding as though it were analogous to the, uh, the conviction or a verdict on the question of guilt or innocence. The persistent offender's determination in Missouri is far different. Unlike the penalty phase of a capital case, that determination is made by the judge at a hearing, not a trial, outside the presence of a jury prior to the case's submission to the jury. Well, uh, it was at Rum Arizona against Rumsey where we had a uh, life or death determination determined by the judge, not the jury, and we said Bullington applied? That's correct, Your Honor. But my point here, however, is that the hearing in this case is unlike the hearing that was at issue in Boynton and also in Rumsey in that it was not trial-like. It was merely a hearing. It was not did not contain the full measure of trial-like aspects that is typically at issue and present in the penalty phase of a capital case. For example, under this statute, the defendant is not entitled to the full panoply of constitutional trial rights. There are no opening and closing arguments. In short, the judge hears evidence and decides the factual question whether the defendant is or is not a persistent offender, and then the trial resumes. Let me emphasize that the persistent offender determination is merely a sentencing factor. It is not the outcome of the sentencing process like a verdict or, or a decision on life or death. It is one factor out of many that lead to the ultimate imposition of sentence. Well, do you take the position that uh, Bullington should just be limited to capital sentencing proceedings? Justice O'Connor, our position is that Bullington's rationale under current sentencing practices really only applies in capital sentencing proceedings in this country. It's quite clear that the decision in Boynton did not rest uh, explicitly on the life or death nature of the the inquiry. But our point is that in in the United States historically and today, the sentencing process is typically much more freewheeling, much more discretionary, and much more unfettered than is true in the capital sentencing process. Now, you take no position on whether this is Teague Bird? Your Honor, we did not address that issue in our brief because the federal interest in this case, we believe, is on the merits of the Boynton question. Well, the federal we, interest might also turn on a Teague determination in some cases. That is quite true. I don't want to mis, mis, uh, misstate our position. Our position is that Boynton ought not to be extended outside the capital context, i.e. the context where life or death determinations are made after a full trial-like process. We think it's quite clear, and we agree with the state, that this, is a, this case should be Teague-barred, that, that extending Boynton to, to this case would be a new rule. Our primary concern, frankly, in this case, is to preserve the integrity of the federal sentencing system as enacted by the Sentencing Reform Act. It's a wrong rule. It's got to be a new rule, doesn't it? We think that's quite clear, Your Honor. In fact, the Court of Appeals, in, in discussing the issue and whether it was a short extension of Boynton or an ex- uh, 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 indicated itself that it was an extension of Boynton. 
And in that sense, it clearly is a new rule in our position, in our view. Let me ask you your view. Supposing a state that did not have capital punishment instead had life imprisonment without possibility of parole as a very, for very, very serious crimes, decided to impose a sentencing procedure that's analogous to those that are used in the, in the death penalty states to, to be, because it's such a serious crime, they had all the trial-like procedures there. Do you think Bullington would apply or not? Well, Justice Stevens, I think that would be a hard question. Well, the, the rationale hard. of Bullington uh, would, of course, be uh, applicable in that situation, and, and you would have to decide whether all of the features that were present in Bullington were present in that Suppose system. All, I see I'm, my hypothesis. All of them are present except it's a different sentence. Well, I have two responses. First, this Court's subsequent decision in Poland versus Arizona emphasized quite heavily the life-or-death nature of the decision in Bullington and was willing to treat that as an implied acquittal-type uh, situation. But, but more, more importantly, it seems to me that the states are under no constitutional compulsion in the case that you described to provide such procedures. So in such a case, a state would have the argument that it ought not to have to pay the price of not being able to correct errors if it provides defendants with more procedures to which they are constitutionally entitled. So there would be an arguable distinction in that case. That, of course, is not a question the court has to reach in this case. But you would not, you don't rest, neither of your grounds then rests on the fact that death is different from uh, a non-capital case. No, no, it does not, Your Honor. The, The decision in Boynton did not rest on that. But let me emphasize again that the rationale of Boynton was that because there was this full trial-like process and because it was a question of life or death, an up-down, yes-no question, then the court was willing to treat the outcome of that proceeding as though it were a verdict on the question of life or death, i.e. innocent or guilty. That analysis stands alone in this court's sentencing cases relating to double jeopardy. We submit that it should not be extended any further. In this country, there has never been, under traditional sentencing practices, any impediment to the correction of errors on resentencing this court in Poland versus Arizona declined to extend Bullington outside the context in which it arose, that is, where there was a full trial-like procedure with the ultimate determination of life or death. Mr. Kelly, your position is clear that Bullington should not be extended to the circumstances of this case. I wasn't clear on your answer to the T question. If we accept your position, is there any way we can decide that question, or does T mean that we must say, if we're inclined to think it's a wrong rule, then it's surely a new rule, so we have to stop with the new rule. I think it's quite plain, Justice Ginsburg, under the Teague analysis, that the new rule inquiry is a threshold question. So the court could not reach the merits and rule in favor of the respondent in this case if it thought that would be a new rule. Whether the court could overrule Boynton uh, in this case, even if extending it would be a new rule, is a different question. We think that there would be a reason, reasonable uh, ground on which to reach that question. We, of course, have not urged the court to overrule Boynton in this case, simply because we think it does not require the state to lose here. So the end result of your argument, then, is that we should hold this claim Teague barred? We think, Your Honor, that under Teague, Teague and, and, its, and its progeny, that the, the claim clearly is Teague barred. We discussed the merits of the case and, and, and participated in the case on the merits, both to, to inform the court's analysis of whether this would be a new rule, i.e., what are the contours of the Boynton analysis, and, and secondly, and, and as I said, more importantly, from our perspective, to make sure that whatever the court says here, it does not cast doubt on the integrity of the federal sentencing system it's as an act. If I remember correctly, you don't even mention Teague in your, your brief, do you? No, we did not, Justice Stevens. As I said, our, our, the federal interest really here was I'd like in... like us to go ahead and decide the case because you think maybe you can win it. 
Well, that, that is not, that's not at all our position, Justice Stevens. We're agnostic on the Teague question. We think, however, of course, that an analysis of Teague would lead to this claim being Teague barred. Unless the Court has further questions, we'd ask the Court to reverse. Thank you. Very well, Mr. Kelly. And Mr. Sindel, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In Missouri, it is the legislature that is responsible for enacting the laws that govern the procedures utilized in the trial of criminal cases. It is the legislature that establishes what is a criminal act and what punishment the actor deserves. It is up to the courts to interpret and to enforce these procedures. As the court said in Missouri v. Hunter, it is the legislature, not the courts, that prescribe the scope of punishments. In this case, the legislature set out in clear, unambiguous terms the exact procedure that was to be followed if the state wishes to increase the punishment and the scope of punishment for a prior offender and deprive that defendant of his valued right to a jury determination of sentence. By increasing the scope of punishment, it's just that here isn't it just a question of who sets the ceiling? Um, we were told that there is no difference in the sentencing range. There would be a difference um, in parole eligibility. That is correct, Your Honor. In this particular situation, because of the crime that was charged, it's a Class A felony, and there is no higher punishment other than the range of a Class A uh, penalty, unless, of course, it's capital. And the the range is rather large. Uh, The range is 10 years to 30 years or life imprisonment. And and so the the only consequence, as I understand it, is that this case would have to go back, if you're right, for an entire new trial before a new jury, is that right? That is state law, Your Honor. Because you couldn't have a jury just come in for the penalty, not having heard the evidence. That is correct. There are no separate bifurcated proceedings except in the capital context uh, in the state of Missouri. So there would be a whole new trial, but then the jury would be faced with that same 10 to 30 year range. The jury would be instructed as to the range of punishment if they were in fact to find him guilty of the offense as charged robbery first degree. Right. So you could end up with the identical sentences if that would be within the jury's prerogative. You could end up with a a larger sentence as well. But in this situation, the most valued right that was lost to this defendant was his right to have that jury determine his sentence. So the, so the, but within the Wellington frame of reference, how can one say that the defendant has been acquitted of any portion of this penalty if, as you just said, he could get the very same penalty? In fact, he could get an even higher penalty. Our position is not at all that he was acquitted of the penalty. Our position is that he was acquitted of the status determination that he is a prior or persistent offender. It is that yes, no, either or fact-driven determination. The state must prove under the legislative enactments beyond a reasonable doubt that this particular defendant has committed a felony in the past. They must do so by filing with the information or indictment the convictions, the nature of the charge, the sentence that was imposed. They must bring to the court evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. I have stood here and heard counsel refer to this as a hearing or as a ministerial act. I do not know of other ministerial acts that must be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. In this particular situation, it is true that they could submit to the court certified records of the conviction. They could use, if the defendant had testified, his testimony to try and establish necessity required by the statute. How did they, in fact, prove the prior convictions the second time around? The second time, there were submitted certified copies 
of the uh, records, and the statute allows for certified copies to be utilized by the court in making it a prima facie determination as to whether or not the state has proved their case. So to that extent, it's quite different from the assessment of life versus death, where you take into account aggravating factors, mitigating factors. Here, either you had a conviction or you didn't. The conviction, prior conviction existed or it didn't exist. Well, that, that is true. However, if the conviction exists, they still have the op, op necessity of proving it. It is not enough, for example, the state could not have been in a position where after the trial had been concluded, they then went to the appellate court and decided, well, we forgot or we failed or we have now recovered the certified documents necessary to prove our case, and we want now to be able to submit those cases to the court and have a determination that this individual is a persistent offender and enhance the punishment. The state has no right to such an appeal. But in fact, the ruling by the Court of Appeals in this case gave them exactly that right. It gave them that second bite of the apple, that second crack that the Double Jeopardy Clause precludes. And in fact, it violated the very uh, statutes enacted by the legislature to, by the state of Missouri in order to enforce these particular provisions. The state of Missouri, by its statutes, demands that this determination be made prior to submission to the jury simply because that is the only way to make it sure that that individual is not deprived of his valued right to a jury determination of sentence. In this particular situation, the Court of Appeals abrogated that, basically end run around the provisions of the statute, ignored the legislative enactment. You're referring to the Missouri Court of Appeals or the Eighth Circuit? I'm sorry, the Missouri Court of State Court of Appeals, correct. It is also our position, I've heard it is referred to as a hearing, but there is the option and opportunity for, to present evidence, and in other state proceedings, evidence is often presented in the terms of testimony, and the defendant has all the rights that are available to him at the trial. What sort of evidence would you present uh, uh, if, if you, the issue is persistent offender, habitual offender, and the state comes in with certified copies? Well, if they, if they, let's say if I represent the defendant, and we can contend, A, the identity of the individual named in the certified copies is not the defendant. We can contend that he was not properly represented by counsel. We can contend that it was not a voluntary plea of guilty. We can contend that the court had no jurisdiction. There are a number of factual issues that may, in fact, develop. And it's also important to remember that in the Bullington case, the only evidence that was presented in the penalty phase at that trial was two copies of records of conviction. There was no testimony, either in aggravation or mitigation. So that trial was as short and concise and complete as the trial that occurred in this particular case. And it is a trial that occurs in this particular case. All the hallmarks of a trial proceeding are, pres are present as well. The, sec the second time around, uh, did you present any evidence challenging the uh, prior convictions? I wasn't the attorney. Well, at that particular did, did the respondent's attorney. I understand. He, he presented no evidence, but he did make a long, lengthy, and aggressive argument, a closing argument. Unsuccessful, I gather. Unsuccessful is correct, Your Honor. Mr. Sindel, um, I guess there are decisions of various courts going both ways on whether Bullington extends to this kind of a non-capital setting. Isn't that so? There are decisions from state courts that hold that it doesn't extend to non-capital settings. The and decisions they that they were out there before this decision was handed down. Some of them, certainly. Yes, I believe that's correct. 
I, I can't say for myself exactly what state courts had, had decided or And when. the state courts in Missouri had, in the Lee case, said that uh, this persistent offender proceeding is different from the capital sentencing proceeding. State versus, in Bullington. State versus Lee relied on, and in fact the court indicated it was constrained by the application of the Supreme Court of Missouri and three or four other state cases, all of which were decided before Bullington. And but the, I, I guess it did say that the persistent offender scheme bears no similarity to the capital sentencing scheme in Bullington. And I don't believe that is correct. At least that's what they said. That is what they said. Okay. Now, do you think that under all these circumstances, we have a Teague Bar problem here? Well, I believe you're... a new rule that's been adopted here under Your Honor, our precedent? excuse me. I do not believe that this is a new rule. It is simply, as the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals indicated, a logical step from Bullington. There's basically two distinguishing factors from Bullington to this particular case. One is the existence of jury sentencing, and clearly that makes no difference in terms of the application of Bullington, as this court decided in Arizona versus Rumsey. And that also impacts upon, as Justice Stevenson noted, whether or not there are, are uh, jury instructions or deliberations. All those things may not occur, and they didn't occur in Arizona versus Rumsey, uh, other than the deliberation that takes place in the judge's mind. But in terms of the Teague issue, besides the fact that there is jury sentencing, which Arizona versus Rumsey says is not important, the only other distinction is death is different, which this court, at the time that Bullington was decided, every justice had at least indicated that in some opinion or another. But the, the Bullington court specifically did not rely on the death is different argument. In fact, it relied, it, 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 it indicated in a footnote that we are not deciding this case based on the 8th and 14th Amendment uh, positions that were presented by the petitioner at that time, and they decided it only on the double jeopardy issue that was presented. So we do not believe, uh, it was not the Court of Appeals' words that they stretched the holding of Bullington to a, in, in an application of this case. They said they did well, not believe it. This court has uh, at least reserved the question of the applicability of Bullington in in meetings like this. And there are lower court decisions going the other way. It seems to me that you have a real problem under Teague. I don't believe that the existence of lower court opinions in and of itself is enough to preclude an examination of this particular issue under Teague. Uh, for example, in Stringer versus Black, the same situations occurred. This court had determined, in fact, that the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, in concluding that the uh, Maynard v. Cartwright and Clemens versus Mississippi did not apply to those particular situations, was incorrect. And if, if, in fact, the distinguishing characteristics that are brought out by for the court when they determine whether or not Bullington is different from these situations, and those distinguishing characteristics uniformly are one that death is different, which is not a Bullington issue, and the fact that it's a judge rather than a jury determination, which is not a Bullington issue, and the fact that this is, there has been a history in this court of not recognizing that sentencing procedures are covered in the double jeopardy clause. Now, it is important to understand that in terms of making this sentencing decision, what we are talking about is the yes-no answer to the question of the status of the individual involved. It is not the line drawing along a continuous spectrum or gradient of decisions concerning what is the appropriate number of years. It is not our position that there is a correct number of years that the court is required to determine beyond a reasonable doubt. 
What the court is required to determine beyond a reasonable doubt is whether or not the state has brought before them convincing evidence to prove that this individual is, in fact, a prior or persistent offender under the statutes of the state of Missouri. If that were the only issue in the proceeding, you'd have a comparatively strong argument. But that is not the only issue in the proceeding. Uh, and in that respect, uh, the, it, it is different from the Bullington situation because the degree of discretion that's left is a broader degree of discretion than was left in Bullington. Is that a fair statement? The, uh, the, in, in terms of deciding the sentence, you're correct. But we are not appealing the sentence that was imposed. We are appealing from the fact that a status determination was made without any evidence to support it, and the state was allowed a second opportunity to return to court after failing completely. How are you not appealing the sentence? Because what you're saying is this case has to go back and be retried on guilt or innocence and then have a jury determine the sentence, which will fall within the same range, but could be anywhere from 10 years to 30 years. Every case in which is returned to the court for determination as to whether or not or a new trial is going to have the possibility or prospects of a new or different sentence. So you're appealing from a judgment of conviction and a sentence, and you're seeking to get the sentence set aside, indeed the, the conviction, because you have to have a whole new trial under your... Under theory. state law, that is correct. So it's rather technical to say that you're not appealing from the sentence. Well, I, what I am trying to emphasize to the court that it is not, we are not appealing from the determination that a 15-year sentence is appropriate as opposed to a 17-year sentence, as opposed to a 30-year sentence, as opposed to a 10-year sentence. All those decisions are clearly within discretion of the court or the sentencing body, whoever it may be. But we are appealing from the fact that not only did the defendant lose his right to a jury determination of the appropriate sentence, a valued right in the state of Missouri, obviously a valued right for any particular defendant, but also that that determination was made without the evidence that the legislature demands if you are to follow the Missouri statutes. In this particular situation, the court abrogated its responsibility to make sure that those statutes were followed. Mr. Sindel, did you argue Billington here? I did, Your Honor. May I ask you a question about your statute? I notice the procedure applies to a prior offender, persistent offender, or dangerous offender. What, does the statute define the term dangerous offender? It does, Your Honor. Does it, is it defined in terms of prior convictions or just general behavior? Prior convictions as, ter as well as the elements of the underlying offense of conviction. Are there, is it conceivable that there will be issues of fact in a, a, say the charge was dangerous offender rather than persistent offender, that might, might involve more conf conflicts in evidence than just whether or not there was a certified copy of a conviction? That is correct. In terms of the amount of evidence that's necessary, there, are, there could be a number of criminal trials in which a determination of guilt or innocence and a, and a sentence could be imposed where similar evidence would be presented. For example, as this court recognizes the double jeopardy clause applied in the United States versus Dixon, an individual can be found in contempt of court and be sentenced based on conduct simply by admission and judicial notice of the record that the individual had been served with the decree of the court and if he had pled guilty to the underlying offense that resulted in the contemptuous behavior, a document indicating that that particular plea of guilty had occurred. And those two documents, of, in and of themselves, would be sufficient to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. So I don't believe it's the amount of time or the amount of witnesses or the quality or the quantity of the evidence that's presented. It is that the burden that the state places upon the prosecution in order to make, 
reach that determination and the fact that they accord the defendant various constitutional rights that are the equivalent of what he's... May, may I ask you another question about Missouri procedure? Supposing the defendant pleads guilty uh, to the crime, the underlying crime, does the, but then he disputes the persistent or dangerous offender status. Would there then be a separate hearing uh, on those issues? Yes, Your Honor. I Although I would, I would suggest that that very infrequently happens. No, but I suppose it could happen if, uh, if say, the indictment had failed to, to um, allege the prior facts or something like that. I if the indictment had failed to allege or... That'd be the end of the game, right? That would be the end of the game, just like in Bullington, if the state had failed to give appropriate notice of their intention to, in fact, uh, proceed, uh, and the uh, evidence that they intended to use at the penalty phase, that would, be, that would be enough reason in and of itself for the trial court to... Uh, basically preclude any application. Not too unusual, is it, to have a guilty plea on the merits and then have a hearing on sentencing on mitigation and aggravation, even yeah. in a non-capital case? The only reason I say that, Your Honor, is, uh, is that I like to think of myself as a trial lawyer as opposed to an appellate lawyer. I'm, usual, I'm a little unfamiliar up here, but in terms of situations like that, oftentimes in the, those are results from negotiations and the negotiations... I understand, but the that. judge isn't always bound by the negotiations. If the judge in Missouri indicates that he is not going to be bound by the negotiations, then he will probably tell the parties that, and the plea may then go forward, but obviously the defense counsel would probably be well advised to search for a more uh, lenient tribunal. Yes? Your answer to the Teague question that Justice O'Connor asked is simply that the contrary authority was as the... Eighth Circuit said um, they used some adjective besides mistaken, seriously mistaken. That, that's it? That's the adjective, I believe, that's in the opinion. That's correct, Ron. Um, in terms of dealing with the Teague issue as well, there's also the exceptions of Teague. And it's our position that the Double Jeopardy Clause has a spe special implications as far as the first exception to Teague, which requires that new rules that place an entire category of primary conduct beyond the reach of the criminal law or that prohibit imposition of a certain time of punishment for a class of defendants because of their status or offense, which is the uh, application that was used by this court in Penry versus Linau and joined by all the justices in making a determination as to whether or not there is a particular category which an individual may be insulated from the determination or the application of the Teague principles. And it's our position that the Double Jeopardy Clause, in fact, does this and does provide this sort of insulating protection to this particular defendant and to other defendants. It's very difficult in many ways to apply the Double Jeopardy principles uh, to the Teague analysis in some ways, and this has been recognized by this court in Robinson versus Neal when it determined that the double jeopardy applications in Waller versus Florida were to be retroactive. And Benton versus Maryland itself. It was itself, long before Teague, though, wasn't it? That is correct, Your Honor. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, this, uh, this situation is the first time that the court has had to address the double jeopardy implications in a Teague, uh, in light of Teague. But the difficulty with Teague, for example, one of the exceptions in Teague talks about the accuracy of the proceedings and the fact-finding proceedings. The difficulty with applying the double jeopardy principles is double jeopardy is not necessarily concerned with accuracy. You mean that it doesn't come under that justification for accepting Teague? It, 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 there are obviously indications throughout this court's opinion that accuracy is one of the underlying concepts 
in, in, in the, the application of the double jeopardy clause for fear that the state, use, with use of their resources over and over, will undermine the defendant and eventually be able to obtain a verdict, even though he may be innocent. But you're concerned, or, or we are concerned in this case, with an entirely different accuracy concern, and that is uh, the concern for adequate evidence before making a determination, so that in point of fact, to apply, uh, to allow the, uh, the, the, the rehearing on this issue uh, is, is going to enhance the possibility of accuracy, uh, not undermine it. That, that is conceivably correct, Your Honor, but in every situation in which the Job Jeopardy Clause, there is the possibility that the actual determination of the, uh, uh, that the offender is guilty or not guilty may be uh, undermined or undervalued. And in fact, this court in Ohio versus Johnson and United versus Scott, uh, Scott, United States versus Scott, the Chief Justice indicated that that is not the determination as to whether or not he is in fact innocent. It's whether or not there's been a proceeding that, is, that has occurred in which the state has had that opportunity to present its evidence. And in this particular situation, they had that. Well, that's, that's, that's good double jeopardy analysis, but I don't think it gets you where you want to go under the second Teague exception. I, I, I do not believe that our position... I'd like to tell the court that our position under the second Teague analysis is pristine and easily determined. I don't believe it is. And that is because the double jeopardy precludes the trial from taking place so that there is no accuracy determination, there is no fact-finding process, and as this court recognized in Robinson versus Neal, a trial, a second trial, could be perfectly fair. It could, have, it could be the best trial in the world, but that isn't the situation, and that's why Robinson versus Neal held that double jeopardy application had to be retroactive. That's why Ashby Swenson said that Benton versus Maryland was retroactive because the procedures there were to stop the second trial from taking place at all. Yes, but it wasn't in the name of accuracy that they did it. In, in the Robinson case? Yeah, well, either Robert Robinson or Ash against Swenson, I don't think. Well, Ash versus Swenson obviously had some concerns for accuracy because the individual was acquitted the first time around. They said, you, you know, you basically had your shot. And yeah, but to say you basically have your shot is, is counter to a a accuracy, it seems to me. If, if you say, well, the second time around, uh, we've got more evidence and, you know, both sides can marshal their resources better, uh, you, that, that's a good argument for accuracy, but the, the argument of double jeopardy is you shouldn't have a second chance, but that's not an accuracy argument. In Ash versus Swenson, however, the concern was, is that, as the state admitted at that, in that particular proceeding, was that we had used the first trial simply to hone our strategies as a dry run on the subsequent trials, and the court recognized clearly in that particular situation that that was an accuracy determination. I think, however, as far as the exceptions under T, we are, our stronger argument is under the first exception under T. Uh, clearly, this is a situation in which this defendant would be insulated from any persistent offender status by the failure of the state to present adequate evidence at the uh, as far first as hearing. the evidence is concerned, I, I perhaps didn't understand an answer you gave to Justice Stevens' question. As I understand this statute, the prior offenses. It's just the existence of the, of the felony. There's nothing in here that indicates that the circumstances of the felony are relevant. A per persistent offender is one who has pleaded guilty to or found, been found guilty of two or more felonies committed at different times. It doesn't say anything about the character of the felonies. The character of the felony is the felony itself. The felony of indictment, but not the prior felonies. In other words... To establish that someone is a persistent offender, you wouldn't have to show anything about the character of the prior 
convictions, except that they were convictions for felonies. That is correct. And that's, that's not true of the dangerous offenders. No, that is not true. They're the dangerous the character, but it is true of the prior and persistent offender. Which, which is what we're dealing with here. If it's a persistent offender, that is correct. That are the allegations that were made, and that was the proof that was accepted when the state got their second crack. We believe that, in terms of the Teague analysis, that a, a persistent offender or someone who has been charged as a persistent offender is a category of. Defendants that would be insulated then from the possibility of prosecution, and the state would be precluded from, you know, relitigating their persistent offender status on that particular crime in that particular case. I think it's important to understand that in terms of the Bullington decision and what had occurred, I had heard uh, it referred to that had, did not have the hallmarks of the trial. But I believe that, in particular, this proceeding required all the hallmarks of the trial. The defendant was afforded his Fifth and Sixth Amendment rights, his right to counsel, his right to confront and cross-examine witnesses, and his, his right to present evidence on his own behalf. The state was required to prove their burden beyond a reasonable doubt, and failing that, the judge was, in, was entitled or should have acquitted him. And, in fact, if the judge had made the appropriate determination in this case, and had said that, yes, you have failed in any way to bring before me any evidence, and I stress, as the Eighth Circuit did, they brought no evidence before the court to indicate that there was any prior convictions. In that particular situation, then the judge would have made the appropriate ruling, the case would have gone to the jury, and that would have been the end of the situation. For some reason, unbeknownst to the parties, the courts and the prosecutors failed to in any way indicate on the record what the situation was and why it had occurred, even when requested to by the Court of Appeals, and the, the case was then sent back. I would like very briefly to address the uh, concerns that have been raised by the government concerning the application of any decision in this case to the possible sentencing guidelines. I think there are a number of uh, distinctions that could, can be drawn from the case involving Mr. Boland and, in fact, the situation involving uh, the sentencing guidelines. First of all, the, the standard of proof is, is significantly different. The preponderance of the evidence is sufficient for the uh, government to carry the weight in the sentencing guideline situations. And also, the court, this court recognized in Poland versus Arizona that they're not going to break up that sentencing determination into uh, several groups of many trials. But this is a situation in this case where there is one verdict that was reached, and that is whether or not this individual had been, should properly be classified as a persistent offender. The state failed in their first opportunity to convince the court that that was appropriate. They should not have been given a second opportunity. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Sindel. Uh, Mr. Young, you have five minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Before you start, can I just ask you one question? Yes, sir. Your Honor. questions presented do not mention the Teague issue. Is that correct? Correct. I believe it's encompassed, uh, fairly encompassed in the first question, Your Honor. It doesn't mention Teague, and you just at the end of the brief you did. I thought it was sort of like our Azumi case. No, no, Your Honor. Briefs, but not in the question. Well, Your Honor, in the Azumi case, this court stated that if the Teague was fairly included in the first question, and we feel that if we're asking should it be extended, that fairly encompasses, if it is extended... The first initially. question doesn't say anything about extending. It just well, should apply. should apply. Well, and, and that, you think, implicitly raises a Teague? We, we believe so, Your Honor. In, in any event, it's, uh, the court also noted that if it raises it decides an important question, even if it's not raising the question presented, you can still decide it. Uh, so you could still decide it since it does raise an important question. Plus, since it was not objective... Well, that's part of what Azumi was all about, wasn't it? 
Pardon me, Your Honor, that it wasn't an important question or was oh, that it was... The circumstances under which we will address things that aren't raised in the petition for certiorari. That's your correct, Your Honor, but it was also raised for the first time in the brief in Azumi, and the court noted that even if we decided the question, it wouldn't be an important question. It would only address this case, and it wouldn't help the general interest because they would have to decide whether the per they, they had standing rather than whether the dismissal of the summary judgment dismissal, I believe it was, would... Uh, the intervention, whether the Federal Circuit erred in, in refusing to allow Azumi to intervene was not... A cosmic question. Correct, Your Honor. They said to decide that wouldn't be that important of a question. Plus, also in Azumi, we think is distinguished because in Azumi it was objected to in the in the respondent's brief. There was no objection. We had assert there'd be a waiver in that situation uh, to the issue. The issue that I'd like to raise here on rebuttal, Your Honors, are that respondent seems to assert that we're not looking at the double jeopardy applying to sentencing. We're determining to the status. Clearly, if they're asking it to apply to a status, would be a new rule implication because this court has never decided that it applies to the status of an habitual offender. The status is no different from the factual question of sentencing, but it is a distinction that a court has made. The issue of whether double jeopardy applies to non-capital cases is subject to debate, uh, as Justice O'Connor has noted. In a recent case in which we informed Respondents' Counsel was decided only a month ago in Illinois, in uh, People versus 11, the Illinois Supreme Court declined to apply the Bullington to a not their habitual offender statute. And uh, it shows that reasonable jurors can disagree. In fact, in the Lee case, the Lee case did discuss the Bullington and distinguish it, said this is not Bullington. We think that's a good faith analysis of the existing precedent at that time. As to the exceptions, surely respondent is not stating that an habitual offender is a protected class, which should be implied under the first exception under Teague. Are we encouraging habitual offenders to state that you are a protected class of individuals that obtain a right that will not be punished because of, the new, because of an enactment of a new rule? I, I would disagree with that, Your Honors. Lastly, as I think the court noted, was there is a distinction regarding the accuracy. As Justice Souter pointed out, this gives a more accurate consideration for the jury or for a sentencer to impose, knowing the, the background of a defendant. Whether it be a judge or jury, they should have all rights of the history of the defendant. Even in capital cases, this court has decided that. Jury should have the broadest spectrum of information of a, of a defendant's background before deciding his fate. That would make it more accurate. The same way as this. this so would you make the same argument if they were a dangerous offender and the issue was whether or not the particular crime had all the aggravating circumstances attached to it that the, the state relied on? Could you have a second trial on that kind of issue in the same way? I think in that situation, Your Honor, it would be different. I, I, I and this statute does cover that very situation, doesn't it? That's correct, Your Honor, but th that statute, that section of statute is not, not in well, the resolve here, Your Honor. But your argument applies to it. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Young. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock. <laughs>